Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, October 18th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor and an academician, gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. This Sunday is October 23rd. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And for our friend Charles Willard, who's not with us today, we say hello when he watches on replay, and he usually comes in from Minnesota at 5.30 a.m. Our little team is working to be faithful to the lectionary year C that puts us in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday, and we hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the lead-off person shares some formative questions, and then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us for today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson from Tampa. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm Don Upton from Charlotte, North Carolina, and our lead off this week is Bill Hall. He's been thinking carefully about the questions, and he's going to read the scripture as well. How are you doing, my friend? I'm fine. Welcome to my teammates and those listening in and viewing later. I, I will, in just a moment, read the scripture. I found it helpful to remind myself of a larger context and also that Luke and any of the writers of scripture arrange their narratives and material in a way to make their particular points. This occurs in a section of Luke where I, in in my words, would say that Luke is trying to lift up this message. Those who, in the view of society, are outsiders, weak, disdained, are special recipients of God's mercy. In contrast, those who see themselves as the insiders, the strong, the noble, are surprisingly brought low. Luke 13.30, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. For example, last week, we engaged with the story of the judge who kept rejecting the widow's repeated demands for justice until finally, in exasperation, the judge grants the woman's demand. In a moment, we will hear the story of a Pharisee who touted his righteousness in the presence of a tax collector who acknowledged his unrighteousness. Following that, though left out by the lectionary, are the stories of the children brought to Jesus for a blessing, though opposed by the disciples. Then the account of the rich young ruler, who, though seeking to be faithful, walked away sad because he would not accept Jesus' instructions to sell his possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. And then again, shockingly, Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. Interestingly, next week in the lectionary, we will reflect on Luke 19, 1-10, which presents us with yet another tax collector, Zacchaeus, who does repent and make restitution. All of these passages powerfully present a reversal of Norman normal human expectations. And I read for us now the gospel lesson, Luke 18, 9 to 14, and I read from the New Revised Standard Version. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not 
not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. My first question, and Sarah, I'm going to come to you first. Okay. As in in last week's parable, Jesus begins by making clear the focus of the story. Scripture says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. In this parable, the Pharisee is identified as the one who represents the kind of persons that Jesus is targeting. Sarah, how are we like this person, and how is this stance perhaps true of the church? It's so easy to practice piety on Sunday. It's easy to practice piety when we observe others and think, oh, I would never do that. Or, oh, that's a poor choice on their part. (laughs) But I think that we fall into a routine that's easy to see how people can be Christians on Sunday and then suddenly forget how we're supposed to live Monday through Saturday. So uh, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he notes that uh, the instruction is from chapter 2, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. So if you so that you become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Ken Hubble uh, preached this particular passage this past weekend in the Connection Service at Palmasia Presbyterian Church in Tampa. And um, it was really valuable to me to hear that we should be people of the, the followers of Christ should be people who are recognizable as being different, are recognizable as standing not aloof, but as a refuge in a storm. Um, so my question was, how do we shine like stars to those around us? So much so that we invite them to us instead of repelling them from us. And I think that's really important I think that the church could be like this Pharisee when they adopt judgment as their posture instead of mercy. When humility does not drive their steps, but um, trying to find power and privilege associated to um, maybe catching the ear of a political campaign or figuring out how to get a businessman to do something that's a benefit to the church I think all of these things are are not necessarily problematic in and of themselves, but they offer a certain kind of um, destructiveness and distractedness to the follower of Christ. And I think it's more important that we be seen as a hospital 
for anyone who needs care than, um, if you will, a very exclusive club where only a few are allowed in. That's my point of view. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Well said. Don, your thoughts on this? You're focusing on us and the church. I, I, I'm always amazed how prayer, when it's held up in literature or a parable, reveals character. It's very powerful. And I forget that sometimes. That you know, There's poetry and prose and music and novels and conversations. I forget. And maybe that's what the church's job is supposed to be, that we, we rescue prayer as a way that we understand our hearts, how we reflect our corporate interests together in a prayer of the people, and how it in the literature reveals character. And Jesus knows that. I just, just for, the, for the good of the order, would raise that up. It's very, it's very powerful. And the setting of prayers, I guess, matter. So this is a place and a time where you can see each other or you can get distance from each other. There is an expectation that there be prayer in that place. So there's a role there for those that are in a, in a place like that. Uh, and also the presence of God. In other parables, like the one you referred to last week, where the woman is persistent in almost a godless world, a world with no justice, Jesus sets the tone for that. God's here, strong, uh, two people praying. This is about what God hears. This is about what Jesus is trying to put out there. So there's not a question of God not present, but there's real prayer. Are they both praying? I'll just say they're both being overheard. And maybe that's part of the message, too, that maybe life's an eternal, eternal prayer because we are being overheard at all times, whether we call it a prayer or whether I put my head up and talk about how great I am in my prayer. It's all being overheard. I want to read uh, just a quick translation that Mark Davis did on this. He posted it on 1016, and he said, yet he also said this parable to certain ones who have confidence in themselves that they are justified and who are contemptuous of the rest. And later on, to talk about contempt, his translation also says, to make no account, oh, to despise utterly. And I just wanted to take it to the extreme. That is an extreme. And I forget that Jesus is talking to that extreme. You know, it's revealing character and he feels this way and, he trusts himself, but degrade utterly uh, really resets this parable for me. Probably stating the obvious, but it might be helpful if you're moderating your class, teaching a class uh, this week. Uh, the three parts of this that many people raise up, first is trust of oneself. The second is the context or the focus of the trust. They seem to go hand in hand. One needs the other. And in this case, the focus, the context is righteousness. So it's not just you trust yourself, but trust yourself as righteous. You see yourself as righteous. And then finally, the result of that, my reading these days is, you know, that what that results in is this degrading utterly, uh, seeing oneself as righteous as an apart from others. So just to highlight, I mean, I don't think it's about trusting myself. I think it's trusting myself as it's myself being judge and jury about who I am. Uh, because I trust myself to paint a room. I'm a pretty good house painter. I can do it right. I trust myself. Do I trust myself to ski, ski downhill? No, I do not. 
Do I trust myself to make good decisions when I need a flu shot in the fall to have good health? Yes, I do. Do I, do I trust myself to see myself as righteous and to call myself out? Well, if I do, therefore, therefore, I, I am likely to see myself as a part and to degrade others utterly. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my. So uh, I think to get your point, Bill, for myself, the danger of sizing up people and the behaviors of others and what goes on. Uh, if I'm going to be judge and jury about who I am and whether I'm righteous. And uh, uh, it, I think, says that I am, uh, I'm playing God here and I interpret, I am interpreting the mind of God in terms of what a righteous world even looks like. That's what I've got. Thank you, Don. Uh, and you referred to extremes. I, we need to acknowledge that a typical of a rabbi's way of engaging was to, in a sense, exaggerate uh, the differences and the details, but for the purpose of communicating. I believe we are both Pharisees and the tax collector. Uh, I think that the tension as presented here in Jesus' story is inevitable. Uh, there was much to commend about the Pharisees. They took Scripture seriously and diligently applied themselves to the study of the Torah, seeking to be faithful to the requirements of the sacred scriptures. In this parable, the Pharisee asserts that he goes beyond the minimum expectations. There was no requirement in scripture to fast uh, more often or to give a tithe of everything. Uh, And yet his spiritual strengths became his weaknesses. And I think that's always a, a struggle for us in, in life and in the journey of faith. And it's human nature to compare ourselves with others, tempted to see ourselves as better and superior, thus like the Pharisees exalting ourselves. I think a lot of that's going on right now in this nation in the political world, Uh, one-upsmanship at all ends of the spectrum. Um, There is something good about the churches lifting up high standards. I gathered from what you said, Sarah, you were referring to that, that we are an example, whether we want to be or not. Um, and, and there is to be a difference for us as people of faith. And each week at Palmacy of Christian Church, we sing together the words from Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And much that we do together is in response to that commitment. And yet, I don't want to say this too strongly. I sometimes wonder how a visitor or someone else might feel if they don't share our enthusiasm for that, if, if there is perhaps a sense of judgment. I don't, I don't know that. I, I just wonder how, with the best of intentions, we may be off-putting to people or may inadvertently appear self-righteous. Okay, uh, question two, and Don, I'm going to start with you. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector standing far off will not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
In what ways might our lives of faith and corporate worship influence a vulnerable or struggling person to want to stand at a distance? Don? I think it's awareness and management of where there are gaps or chasms between people, even in a place of worship. Uh, This passage for me is a meditation on the arrogance and embarrassment and self-confidence and self-examination and personal sizing up versus external measures of faith and ethics. And I think the we need and the guidance of scripture and and of the creator cannot be separated from the room and I think seeing it all as a room this is suggesting that we kind of see the world as a room just like last week with the persistent woman we Jesus gives us a universe or a city to see it I think this is a city itself and the temple uh, that we see this is a place where we live. So in one way, we talk about a Sabbath, what you do on a Sabbath, what you separate. But in another way, I think this is meant to be the world itself, the universe that we live in. The tax collector stands apart from God, too, uh, because the tax collector is inserting himself as the mind of God. Um, where are the largest gaps and chasms in this room between the tax collector and others in the temple, I think? between the tax collector and his God. There's a clear gap there between the tax collector and his God. The only hear questions whether or not Yahweh is his God, if the creator is his God. But there's, a, there's a chasm there. He doesn't dare look up. He looks away from the heavens, the other man. He senses the chasm between other men and the creator. It's kind of like a grand canyon of pride. But struggling people want to stand at a distance but is that sense of distance different in self-examination and prayer? Is he standing at a distance out of humility or embarrassment, or is that what we're allowing each other to do as well? Do I need a private place as well? This is not, you know, not necessarily bad. He's to himself and he has his head down. There's nothing that says wrong here, but there is an isolation. There is a privilege of isolation with our God as well. Does the place of worship offer multiple chasms or not? maybe to, your, to answer your question. And are we able to see those gaps and chasms? And I think there's an order there that we could think about. There's an ethic in terms of how we stage that room as if it were an everyday room. To stage the room, the place where we worship and where we come together as if it is home and art, as, it is, as if it is the workplace, as if it is, et cetera. And I think that's what Jesus is encouraging here. Uh, between the judge and the righteous jury, uh, that's not the point uh, on between the rules on how to engage with the creator and the authentic humility and examination of the heart, which is what's going on here. And also, I just, on another chasm, and I think, Bill, you're speaking of this in, in many ways, let's not forget that this struggling person, as we describe him, as Jesus describes him, already has a chasm to deal with because he has a nasty, nasty, stereotyped title. That's what I've got. Thank you, Don, for that emphasis on the the value of uh, the standing apart in self-reflection. Sarah? 
in what ways might our lives and of faith and corporate worship influence a vulnerable and struggling person to want to stand at a distance? Sometimes if we present ourselves as out of reach, um, it might be out of reach financially by how we're dressed, words that we use. We present sometimes um, a, a facade to the world that that seems impenetrable or un, untouchable. Um, I think that th- those are unwelcoming perspectives and often put people at a distance, making them feel like they don't belong or that they don't um, they might not be able to find comfort in that particular place. You know, I, I thought about how did churches, when I used to visit churches in college and also um, as a young married woman uh, trying to find a church home, how did, who made me feel the most welcome and how did they do it? And the first thing that comes to my mind is they spoke to me. They they came up and said hello um, instead of standing at a distance. And I, I will say that the stereotype for Presbyterians is considered the frozen chosen. And I wonder if we can work against that particular stereotype because um, it's not helpful. Uh, but I think the other thing is recognizing what is needed perhaps along the path um, you know, if you see someone stepping into a worship space and, and they're obviously looking in the wrong direction or going in the wrong direction, that's a clue that they're new and that, and that they might need um, a guide or uh, an advocate to help them find the right worship space for their family, where the bathrooms might be, um, where the uh, children's worship bags might be so they'd have some opportunity within worship service to just see where their kids are going to go, whether they can go to godly play or whether they can go to, um, you know, we have a a worship place inside our congregation on Sundays where the kids go to the the playground to sit at a small, low table and do arts and crafts while we hear a sermon. So families are new to the church. That gives them an opportunity to have their kids stay with them. And and as a parent in a new place and not knowing people, I'd be more inclined to keep my child close at hand instead of letting them go away from me. Um, So I think the first thing we have to do is be aware, be attentive, uh, and be focused on the other person and not ourselves. And I hear in the prayer of the Pharisee, his focus is not necessarily wholly on God. His prayer is, is focused on the, the person, the other person in the room. So he has a divided allegiance. But the, the person making the petitional prayer from the tax collector's point of view, his focus is solely on God. He's not looking anywhere else. So I think there's a clue for us there. Um, be focused on God. Walk in humbly rather than distracted. Um, be prepared to speak to God, maybe, when we are um, talking to someone else, be, be prepared that we're speaking directly to the creator when we're talking to the other person. And we see ourselves in equal need. Um, so if we're all only justified by God's abundant grace and not by our own doing, everybody, everybody needs to be welcome. Um, 
we need to ask those people who are visiting and perhaps those people who are in need, well, how can we be of service to you? Instead of making the perception that we know the best for them, because we may not. And uh, I guess, you know, include them in the story, in the meal, in the planning, and in the joy. That's, I guess, how I would approach we might not keep the vulnerable or struggling person at a distance. Well said, Sarah. I particularly was helped by your noting the focus of the Pharisee and the uh, tax collector, self or others, and, and God. Um, this is a there's a powerful intimacy to the tax collector's confession. <laughs> it is not general, but very specific and personal. And for me, the tax collector's acknowledgement is like that experienced by those in 12-step recovery programs who, adhering to steps four through 10, make a searching and fearless moral inventory, admit to God, to oneself, and to another human being the exact nature of one's wrong, entirely ready to have God remove those defects of character, humbly asking God to remove the shortcomings, making a list of all the persons who have been harmed and willing to make amends, make direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others, and continues to take a personal inventory and when wrong promptly admits it. Now, uh, to your point, Don, there is a... um, A difference in 12-step meetings, there's an agreed-upon confidentiality, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. I'm not blurring that distinction, but I sometimes wonder uh, if someone in, and, and I've been there at times where the confession I need to make is, is somehow not dealt with in the usual prayers of confession that we have. And I wrote many of my own. I'm not judging others. It, it's, it's a challenge. Um, I will just end with saying that there's something attractive to me about the brutal honesty of the tax collector. And when that can happen in a safe environment, uh, it can be very transformative, and I I would hope that that happens in worship. Again, public worship is not a uh, a twelve step meeting per se, but the twelve steps can teach us. Now, the third question: Last week's parable began with, then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. This week's story depicts two men in prayer. Thus, both share, both of these stories share the theme of prayer. How might these two stories inform and shape our understanding and experience of prayer? Um, Back to the 12-step movement. I have never been chemically addicted, but I have, I was introduced to the 12 steps in seminary, working at a hospital, and people addicted asking for help 
And so I, for the first time in my life, read the 12 steps and have ever since worked them for myself in my own way. And I place that alongside of my favorite passage about prayer is Romans 8, 26 to 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And God who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. (laughs) I find that very comforting, to know that God by the Holy Spirit sees me as I truly am, unvarnished and loves me with an everlasting love and calls and equips me to continue the journey toward faithful following of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to quote some selected portions from an article in the Christian Century entitled Cheap Mercy. And it's written by Willie Dwayne Francois III, senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church of Pleasantville, New Jersey, and the assistant professor of liberation theology at New York Theological Seminary. He says about this passage, guilt without growth is trivial. It is not enough to announce your sins without a sincere hunger for change. Remorse remorse is not a good alibi for spiritual stagnation. Self-deprecating inaction is not a spiritual maxim to be espoused. Humility before God and honesty about self should drive us to new vistas of productivity, creativity, and love. We cheapen mercy when there is no forward movement, nothing percolating at the inner recesses of our souls, drawing us to revolutionize our lives. Ultimately, this parable is not about the Pharisee or the tax collector. It is about the hearers, those gathered around Jesus with varying motives. We can proclaim our unworthiness, but this cannot be the permanent address of our spirituality. It is just the first step. Now, Sarah, next week when you lead us uh, in the Zacchaeus story, we will see an example of what this pastor is advocating that and and I like that that prayer is um, an important part of our spiritual discipline, but prayer, as the spirit will lead us to pray, will also lead us to action okay, uh Sarah, your thoughts on how this informs and shapes our experience of prayer just a I'm going to park an idea. What if this tax collector is Zacchaeus? And we see this evolution of um, person between these two stories. I don't know that it is. So that could be a total um, fabrication on my part. It's not based in scripture. I just want to put the idea out there, though, that we get the privilege of seeing um, a person moving toward opportunity with God instead of in judgment um, either way. So I I think that this particular story um, or parable or observation that Jesus offers us um, is is somehow a hint of how we approach God. And, And I think that there's something 
absolutely essential that we acknowledge we're wholly unworthy to approach God and, and to, to direct our, our prayers to God, that it's only because God's adopted us and given us grace that we are welcome and that we are listened to and that we're treasured. So with all of that kind of as the preamble, are we not all equally flawed? And is God not equally gracious and generous to, to everyone, to all of us? And are we not the same as the prodigal? Whether we're the older brother or the one that left, are we not all prodigal? And I think there's something important that we, that we, that we measure, that we welcome, or that we uh, acknowledge that we see in each other the same need and the same desire to come into relationship and to stand in dialogue um, with the Creator and, and doing it in such a way that we become of service to others instead of um, in service to ourselves. And I think that's kind of, for me, the, the, the beauty of this story is we get to see the way God sees this conversation to some extent um, and that it's easy for us to um, recognize in the tax collector uh, a perspective or, or a posture that we could adopt. And it's easy for us to recognize a posture or a perspective that we should not adopt in looking at the Pharisee. And I think that that, you know, for, for the really lovely teaching moment, there's a, a moment in education and teaching where you assess, but not judge, you assess where the struggle is occurring for the learner and you try to regroup and give that learner scaffolding to reapproach the task at hand and find success. And it's really simple or easy to fall into judgment instead of falling into the assessment process and then coming at... Um, coming alongside instead of coming at the learner in a different way. And I thought about that frequently. I'm teaching cooking to my kids to try to help them become successful adults. And I often will offer, I said, do you want to know a shortcut? Do you want to know something that makes this easier and something that makes this more successful? And I let them tell me if they do or don't. Um, and it's important to say, you know, maybe you, the first time you clean the bathroom, you do it in a different path or a different way through it. And the second time you clean the bathroom, you figure out the more efficient paths. And the third time you clean it, more often than not, you find the best path through the process. And sometimes that learner needs to do all three of those steps. And the teacher needs to step back and go, it's your bathroom. You're going to clean it how you clean it. Um, and it's the most important thing is you get to the clean bathroom, not the path through the cleaning bathroom. So I'm going to lay it right there and shut up. <laughs> well said, Sarah. Don, your thoughts on prayer. That was beautiful, Sarah. So I'm, I'm going to veer off and just – I was taking notes. I just, I'm just going to write in the margin. Thank you, Sarah. It just that's, That was working for me. Um, is you said, I think God sees the conversation. There's, that's my new theme, that God sees the conversation. 
and that, that this can be, this passage, now I'm feeling because of you, Sarah, can be weaponized on its own, even with my reading today, because I'm trying to do a division of the house and not the business of life, the collective business of life, that, that if this, these conversations are under the watch of the Creator. The eyes of God are present. That's where it begins. And here we are as a people, all of us, here we are, all of us, in this place. And my temptation to do a division of the house, right and wrong, humble and arrogant, like that, I, that's not really what the parable is asking us to do at all, Bill, to your questions. What do we see of ourselves and in the church in this as well? Uh, I think on any given day, if I'm hearing you right, Sarah, we're all seeking truth and assurance and confronting our fears and our failings and our strengths and our hope to be secure and safe. And we're all doing that. And here's just a slice of the world in this one room as if it were the world. But there's the eyes of God watching both of them. And I'm wondering if there's a temptation here to say, you know, who's praying and who's not. And if I'm reading you right, they're both praying where they are. And they're seen. They're both praying. They're acknowledging the creator. Wherever they're standing, whether we agree or not, where they are, it starts with they are being watched and the creator's there on that particular day. And they haven't arrived. They're on a journey. They're on a pilgrimage. And that's a stop along the way. The only person that's arrived is the storyteller who is arriving, the Christ, and the creator who is present. It's just there, present, and listening, and watching. And so in the course of human history, there's those two prayers may represent everything that we are uh, and God's watching. I just, I'm just moved by what you were saying, Sarah, and uh, uh, starting with God, God is, is with us. Uh, so I, uh, I see this as two along the way. I love the Zacchaeus idea. I think that's great. Because with Zacchaeus, I always go, what happens next? Let's go. What does he do the next day? Yeah, I think Jesus says, get back to work. Do it better. And in this way, they're both going out into the world and doing what they're going to do. And there's another day, another day to be had. And they'll both reflect. And it doesn't, it doesn't tell us what happens next at all, except they're on this pilgrimage. Uh, and the Christ who is arriving right now is telling us this story. That's what I've got, Bill. Thank you, teammates. Uh, Don, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll uh, say heads up to our viewers and listeners that uh, we're, ending up, we're, we're wrapping up year C soon and thinking carefully about what year A will look like. It's an exciting time as we get closer and closer to Advent and the church calendar changes. And if you're, if you're new to lectionary, turn the page with us. Turn the page with us as we move into another year. It's a, it is an exciting time and a chance to plan about how we read and talk. Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. For more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A dot org. At that site, you'll hear prayers, discussions, disagreements, reflections, great music, opportunity to take communion. So, so check that out. And as we uh, always think about uh, how we communicate with each other in these podcasts and with you, 
Uh, we turn to you. If you'd like to ever comment to us, you can go to lectionary call in at palmacia.org. That's lectionary call in, one word, C A L L I N, at palmacia.org. We're always excited to hear from you as well. And you're always welcome. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>